Hey, last week we uh, we started off with some uh, word association. Remember that? I said, hey, I'm going to say a word. And whatever comes to your mind, uh, you just kind of tell your neighbor what that was. We we had our niece with us uh, last week. And so the word that I said, uh, it was repentance and whatever comes to your mind. And so I said repentance. And then I said, open up and say whatever words in your mind. And she turned around to my daughter and said appendix. So uh, so hopefully this week uh, it goes a little better because we're going to try something that not word association, uh, but we're going to start off with a little riddle. How many of you like trying to solve riddles? Anybody? Yeah. A few of you. Both of you. Great. All right. Hey, listen, high stakes this morning. The winner of this will receive a free podcast of last week's message. All right. So get your game face on. Here it is. Here's the riddle. Don't shout out. Just in a minute. I'll say go. And you, you turn and tell the person next to you to see if you get it right. OK, hey, here it is. What is a gift? That everyone wants to receive, but most find hard to give. What is a gift that everyone wants to receive, but most find it hard to give? All right. Count of three. Turn and tell the person next to you. See if you got right. Ready? One, two, three, go. What is it? Yeah. How many of you said forgiveness? Yeah. I, now I don't know. There's no way to test that. So I'm just going to trust your people of integrity. All right. So if you get on our website, free podcast for you, you're welcome. All right. Hey, listen, everyone loves to receive forgiveness. We, we love to be the benefactors, the recipients of forgiveness. But we're not always so excited to give that gift. We like to hold, withhold that and uh, taunt people with that and those things. But uh, that's why C.S. Lewis said this. He said, everyone is fond of forgiveness until they have something to forgive. Then we're not quite as excited about it. Right. Uh, but even though it's difficult to give. It is crucial. Listen, it is crucial in being in a position to, to receive revival. Should God choose to send it is not have hearts filled with bitterness. All right. So let's look at turning Bibles. If you have them with you to second Corinthians chapter uh, two, second Corinthians chapter two. We're going to look this morning at verses three through eleven for the third message in our Revive Us Again series with a message entitled uh, Pre-existing Conditions Part Two. Uh, last week we looked at pre-existing uh, condition part one was repentance. We'll look at another condition next week and then we'll wrap it up on March the third uh, with a message entitled Why Revival Tarries. But oftentimes we're going to deal with this morning, this idea of unforgiveness or bitterness in our hearts. Oftentimes, the wall between the church and revival is made up of bricks of bitterness. Bricks of bitterness. All right. Well, as you're turning your Bible, let me tell you a, a true story about the power of bitterness and breaking through and how God can finally send revival. A true story. Dr. John R. Rice, great evangelist now with the Lord, was asked to conduct a revival meeting at a Baptist church in Woodbine, Texas. And divisions and strife had been so rampant in that church, it just broke the heart of the pastor. And so finally he just said, I'm going to resign. Uh, God can never move in this church again, so I'm just going to move on. And so the county missionary, wanting to see God do a movement again in that church, invited Dr. Rice to come and preach the revival services. And when he got there, he found the whole community was divided. Uh, one or more deacons had had fistfights, literally, in, in that uh, exchange. Uh, it had permeated every home in this, this little church. And uh, many had taken a vow. They said, I will never again darken the doors of that church ever again. Dr. Rice didn't know all the details, but he just went and said, listen, there, there is something going on here. And I've got a great burden for revival in this church uh, that God would move again. So he preached against sin. Uh, he preached about urging God's people to clean up their lives. He urged them to uh, repent before God and reconcile with each other. And so often what happens uh, is this, is that when you start preaching themes like that to hard hearted people, their anger for each other gets redirected and they're angry at you, the pastor. That's happened to me. Believe it or not, I know you would never, ever imagine uh, someone's ever been mad at me as your pastor, right? It's always hugs and kisses and butterflies and unicorns, right? 
But sometimes that happens. You start dealing with the sins of the people, calling that onto the table there, and their anger says, I'm no longer mad at the people around me or no longer just mad at them. I'm mad at you. And so one lady got so fired up uh, that she said, I'm going to call him because he has moved from preaching to meddling. And I don't need anybody meddling. All right. And but her son came in, a uh, teenage son came in. Simon said, I've been praying. Uh, God, God has just challenged my heart. And the doctor, Rice, listen, I know you may not like it and you're angry, but he's right. But until we get right with each other, we can't be right before God. If we're not right before God, God's not going to send revival. And so she held off on that phone call. So next service, uh, Dr. Rice says, you know, I just feel led uh, instead of starting with preaching. I just want to open up with a time of testimony. And so that lady who was so angry at him got up and confessed her anger and her sin towards someone else with tears. And that lady ran across the auditorium and embraced her and hugged. And at that moment, the spirit of God fell on that place. People started confessing their sins, weeping before the Lord, reconciling with each other, uh, seeking forgiveness, making restitution. And so word got out. Listen, when, when there's fist fights in the church, everybody in the community knows. All right. Not in a good way, by the way. But when God comes down, guess what? Everybody knows about that, too. In a movement of genuine revival, so word spread around this little country church. And that night, uh, the little church building was packed to capacity. Uh, People came to the church who had not been there in months. People who said, I will never, ever again darken the door of that church because of what they said or what they did or what happened. uh, Those things. Uh, But from that point forward, dozens of people that night gave their life to Christ. Hundreds of Christians were revived. And literally, that church was packed for 30 days straight and God sent revival. And so I think it's key. That's a true story that bitterness is an incredible barrier to revival. And so that's what we're going to deal with uh, this morning. Revival is a turning back to God after a period of spiritual indifference or decline among the people of God. And why we said that uh, revival is a, a grace gift from a sovereign God. We can't schedule it. We can't work it up. God has to choose to send it. There are some things we can do to put ourselves in a position to receive revival should God choose to send it. We're going to look at one of those things uh, today again as well. All right. Now, these are some pre-existing conditions, not, not exhaustive, but these are some of the elements that, that where our heart has to be to genuinely receive revival. All right. Second Corinthians chapter two. Let's begin at verse three down through verse 11 this morning. He says, and I wrote this very thing uh, to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you. All that my joy is the joy of you all for out of much affliction and anguish of heart. I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love for which I have so abundantly uh, for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So let me just uh, talk, pause a little minute. Let me give you some context. Apparently, uh, someone in that fellowship at First Baptist Corinth, uh, they, they, had, they had offended some other people or maybe even lots of people. OK, and so uh, so that some action had to be taken. As a matter of fact, many scholars believe that this person they're referring to, although we can't be dogmatic about it, is actually the same person that was uh, excommunicated from the church that First Corinthians chapter five talks about that, that passage on church discipline. So this person uh, got in the church, stirred up some division, and uh, apparently they've come to the place of repentance now because Paul said, hey, listen, what the majority of you did, verses five and six, was uh, appropriate for what they did. But now it's time to move forward in forgiveness. Apparently they were having a hard time with it. Okay. Verse seven. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. 
Therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And maybe some of your translations say his schemes, but the same, obviously, root word uh, there in the Greek. So about two and a half years ago, uh, I preached a message on, on forgiveness out of Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, but it's probably a good idea to revisit the, the subject of forgiveness uh, every so often. You know why? Because as human beings, we're either one of two places we find ourselves. We either need forgiveness or we probably need to extend it to someone else. If you're going to walk this earth and rub shoulders with sinful humanity, guess what? You need to forgive and learn how to forgive. And there is no such thing as any enduring relationship apart from liberal and general doses of forgiveness on a regular basis. I shared that story about John R. Rice earlier about the power of bitterness being a barrier to genuine revival. Uh, this week I came across a, a story and a quote uh, from Byron Paulus. Byron Paulus is the executive director of Life Action Ministries, which is probably the premier revival-centered ministry in the country. That's all they do. Go around the country and call God's people to revival. And he, here's what he said. He said, after reaching out to more than 4 million believers in 6,000 churches, over the past four decades, our team of revivalists would unanimously concur that the number one problem they encounter is unforgiveness. He said, in the churches we've been in, bitterness is rampant, forgiveness is not. And church after church, as we proclaim the truth about bitterness and forgiveness, we finally hear powerful testimonies of God setting captives free and God sending revival. Is that powerful? It's that big of a barrier to genuine revivals, bitterness in my heart, having the ability to forgive and choosing not to. And it's exactly where Paul uh, is writing here and finds these people. He's saying, hey, listen, I understand what they did. I'm not even saying what you did was too harsh. Matter of fact, it was probably sufficient for what happened. But I'm just telling you that now is the time. Apparently, this person had come to the place of repentance. And Paul said, put that behind you and move forward in forgiveness. And they were having an incredibly difficult time with this. It doesn't tell us who this is. Uh, many commentators, and maybe a section of your Bible uh, says this, that this person is sometimes called the great offender. How would you like that as your nickname? Right? Mom and dad, I want you to meet my new boyfriend. Uh, at school, they call him the great offender. Amen? Isn't that encouraging? But apparently this guy, listen, he did something so heinous uh, that he become known as the great offender. All right? Now, apparently this person had come to the place of repentance. You see, the Bible says in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, that when your brother sins against you, if he repents, forgive him. It's a conditional thing. I'm not extending cheap grace to someone that's unrepentant. I've got to let go of the bitterness, but I'm not going to them and saying, listen, I forgive you, uh, extending that cheap grace to them. So apparently this person had done that and they'd come to a place where they were just holding on to their anger. Holding on to that injustice and that hurt that had been done to them. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore? Amen. That we don't have that. Listen, those are first century problems. We don't even struggle with that. That is so old school, right? We're so far beyond that in our technological age. Listen, it's this. the human heart has not changed ever. Right. These the same struggles they're having is the same struggle that we have or we will have or we have had. And Paul addressed it incredibly uh, directly because uh, this is a, a powerful passage on the idea of forgiveness. So let me walk through here and survey this passage. You're going to know uh, four benefits of forgiveness or letting go of bitterness 
in your heart. First one is simply this, is that forgiveness makes God's mercy tangible. It makes the mercy of God tangible. We talk about the mercy of God. It's this kind of theoretical thing that, that God could pour on his wrath, but, but he doesn't. Those things we talk about the mercy of God. But when you choose to forgive someone else, it puts legs under that doctrine. It makes the mercy of God tangible. Verse five. He said, but if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. I, I, I understand he hurt you is what he's saying. I'm not downplaying the hurt. I'm not, I'm not justifying the hurt. I'm not saying what he did is okay. That's not forgiveness at all. I'm not, I'm not saying that it wasn't right to hold him accountable, hold that person accountable. That's not forgiveness, okay? He says not to be too severe because this punishment, verse 6, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. What he's saying is, hey, you listen, you put them outside the church and that was an appropriate act of justice. That was an appropriate act of discipline. Now, here's the difficult thing. How do you know? How can you get to the place when you're trying to restore a relationship? Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's in parenting. Maybe it's in a, in a word context. Maybe it's with somebody just uh, in your circle of influence, whoever it is. How do you know when you can finally get that place in verse six? Like he said, when you say the discipline is sufficient. How do you know when you reach that point, you say, hey, listen, the discipline was sufficient. It has the, the desired outcome. Uh, do, you know, do you, do you ground him? Do you spank him? Do you send him to the room? Do you make him write a letter? Do you go tell the boss? Do you put it out there on Facebook? Do, you know, do, do I go and confront them? How do I know when I've got to a place? I don't think there is a pat answer for every situation and every hurt and every individual. But let me tell you a safe boundary that you can kind of rest in this morning on the authority of God's word. Remember this or write this down. When the person becomes repentant, the discipline was sufficient. When they come to the place where they confess that sin, they turn away from it, they turn towards God in repentance. That is a key uh, warning place or say, hey, listen, they've come to a place of repentance. Guess what? The discipline was sufficient and now extend the mercy and grace of God. And that's not a hard formula. We hold them accountable. We hold them accountable for those actions. They recognize it. They come to a place of repentance. We're to extend mercy. That's not a hard formula to understand. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek or any of those things to understand that. But why is it that it's so hard to do? Because let's just be honest this morning. Sometimes continuing to punish them feels good. All right. Sometimes they hurt me so deeply that forgiveness seems cheap and too easy and quick and holding them accountable, even beyond the point of repentance, holding them accountable feels good. It gratifies my sinful flesh. And there's no need to continue to bring that the, the fence up again. Once that person has come to repentance, listen, you've moved beyond the limits of God's word. You've moved into a punitive damage in their lives. That the whole purpose of discipline in the eyes of God, when the Bible talks about God chastens or discipline every son whom he receives, it was never punitive, it's redemptive. And if your accountability moves from redemptive, I want to see you turn from your sins, I want to hold you accountable so you recognize those sins and own them and confess them and turn from them, and it moves to, I now just want to see you squirm and suffer, you're outside the boundaries of God's plan. It's so hard to get there sometimes. And apparently it was for these folks because Paul said, hey, listen, I'm not saying what you did was wrong. Matter of fact, I'm saying what you did was probably right. 
But I'm saying you're hanging on to that hurt for way too long. You're moving past the boundaries of what I ever intended because he's come to the place of repentance, apparently. And so now it's time I urge you to move forward and extend the mercy of God. Make it tangible in his life, not some abstract doctrine. Show him the mercy of God in this life. Remind this in Psalm 103. Talking about forgiveness, displaying the mercy of God. David said this in Psalm 103. He said, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. That is a hard thing to do, is it not? It seems cheap. It seems too easy. It seems like letting them off the hook. But listen, if the goal is growth and change in their life, once the place of repentance comes, it's redemptive. It's not punitive at that point and moving forward and extending the mercy of God. Oh, but we struggle with revenge. Oh, and I, listen, I don't I would never do to them what they did to me. But man, if I could like 10 percent, I would be OK with that. Like if I, they could just feel for a short time what I have felt for months or even years or even decades, if they could just feel a, a little part of that, then I think I would back off and I would move into from punitive to redemptive kind of accountability. I think I would listen when your heart gets driven and pursued and the primary passion of your life is revenge. You're playing God because here's what the Bible says. In Scripture, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, the Living Bible says this. Never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God, for He has said that He will repay those who deserve it. Do you see that? That any time that I move into revenge mode, I'm, I'm playing God. I'm saying, God, I don't know if you can be trusted. I don't know if you're going to make justice in this situation. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to exact some justice on your behalf, but the reality is, it's on my behalf. Because I just want them to hurt like I've been hurt. Let me tell you why this is so crucial to your spiritual life. It's because bitterness has an insatiable appetite. Bitterness will find every crack and crevice in your heart and creep into it and consume it until there's no room left for God to move in the spirit of revival. I like what one writer said. He said, bitterness destroys us. We think we're hurting the other person by not forgiving them, but bitterness destroys us. And he went on to say, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You think about that? That when I hold on to bitterness, it's a poison inside of my heart, but I won't forgive that person. And so it's like drinking poison and sitting across waiting for the other person to die. All the while it's destroying us and our hearts. Forgiveness is doing for someone else what Christ did for you. That doesn't say that what they did was right. It's not letting them off the hurt. It's modeling the character of Christ in that person's life. Look at verse 10. How many times he mentions the word forgive or forgiveness. He says, now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes. How? In the presence of Christ. What he's saying is, hey, listen, we're all in this boat together. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Wouldn't you like to be a sinner, too? He said, we all are in need of forgiveness. And so you need it. So you better model it and extend the mercy of God in that situation. Once that person comes to repentance. And so forgiveness makes tangible the mercy of God. It's doing for others what God has done for us. Second principle in this passage is this, is that forgiveness restores the offender. Forgiveness restores the offender. 
Bible teacher Ray Pritchard, uh, in his teaching on this passage, made the following observation. It's an outstanding one. Why, why we're so we don't really want to restore people. Sometimes we'd rather keep them in the dirt and, and yell at them and be angry and just nurse that anger. But here's what he said. It's a little lengthy, but it's too good to omit. So, so just stay with me. He said this. He said so many times we're like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Remember him? But his younger brother goes out. And he spends his inheritance in a far country. And he ends up eating with the pigs and finally he comes to himself and he says, my father, I have it better. Or the servants in my father's house have it better. What am I doing? And there's a place of repentance and he literally turns back and goes home back towards the father. And there's this rejoicing, put a ring on his finger, break out the fatted calf. My son who was lost has now been found. You know, my son is come. We're going to have this incredible party. And what's the older brother doing the whole time? One of the servants goes, hey, listen, what's all this about? Your brother's home. He's furious. Furious. He sits back there and says, well, I never spent my daddy's inheritance. I didn't go to a far country. I didn't eat with the pigs. I've been here working and laboring. all stuff. He never threw a party for me. So he says, so many times we're like that older brother and the prodigal son. He said, down deep, the sins of others anger us so bad that we really don't want them to repent. Forgiveness seems too cheap and quick and easy. After all, we're the ones who played by the rules. And we're not like those other people. But when it comes to someone we knew and thought we could trust, someone who let us down or hurt us deeply, we're not very quick to forgive. Truth be told, we think we're better than that guy who made all those Stupid choices. You know what I found in my own life? He's right. He's right. It's because the reason that I'm slow to forgive other people is because I look at their life and think, you, you sinner, I would have never done that. You know what? God's been the whole time looking at me in my life and going, hey, you already have. Not only would you, you, you have. And God wants to restore it and bring me back up into fellowship. It's so carnal because where we find that sinner that we want to punish, that person that's hurt us, we want them to suffer. Where they are in our eyes is the same place that Christ found us in God's eyes. That he looked down and said, yes, you're down and out and, and you're in the dirt. But instead of sitting above you going, I told you so, you should have listened to me. You should have done that. He scoops us up in an act of mercy and grace and restores us back to the Father. And that's the place God wants to get us and forgive us. It's not sitting over the person, you know, I told you so, you deserve it. You should have never done that. I would have never said that. It's moving to the place and getting down and saying, listen, I forgive you. And I want to restore you back in the fellowship in this relationship. And the same place they are in our eyes is the same place that Christ found us in the eyes of the Father. Exact same place. Look at verse 7 and verse 8, what he says in chapter 2. He says, on the contrary, listen, I know you're angry. I know what you did was the right thing to do. I understand that. But on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Do you see that? Forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps the one be swallowed up. With too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, listen, that, that, that's what restoration looks like. Let, let me tell you what, what is not. It's when the person is down, they've offended us and they're repentant and they're, they're wallowing in that sin, that guilt, all those kinds of things. And what comes out of our mouth is this. I forgive you. But we treat them like dirt from that point forward. No, no, no. What do he say? He says you've forgiven them and you've 
comforted them. You see, forgiveness may come out of our mouth but until it gets down here like this. It's not legit. It's not legit. He says that you may bring them up to the place where there's not excessive sorrow to the point where it overwhelms them or, another translation, destroys them. Forgiveness restores the offender. You notice something in verse 7 and verse 8 that I love? That I just learned this week when I was studying. Notice something in this? He talks about this person over and over. He makes reference over and over. He says, hey, what you did was fine. Should have done it. No, it's hard, but you should have did it. Listen, over and over. You know what? There's something interesting here. He never names him by name. He never says, oh, you know, Billy Bob. Is that a first century name? I don't know if that is, right? I don't, it, it, just roll with me, okay? Listen, he doesn't, he, doesn't breathe. he doesn't even mention their sin again. All the Corinthians, that's all that matters. He had no desire to smear that person's reputation one last time before forgiveness and restoration happens. Well, I'm going to forgive them, but you know what they did and who they are. And it was incredibly horrible. Can you believe them? And oh, we should model that. Listen, in the age that we live in, where I can put every injustice out there for the whole world to see in a matter of seconds on Facebook or on Twitter, and everybody can read it. We should follow the wisdom of Paul and say, you know what? It's not about who it was or what they did or making them feel uh, punished beyond what God wants them to. It's about restoring that person into a right fellowship. So he said forgiveness is making the mercy of God tangible. Forgiveness's motive is restoring the sinner, not just with my words, but a desire to comfort them. That's what he said there in verse 7. And then he says on in verse 9, forgiveness displays some spiritual maturity. Forgiveness displays spiritual maturity. Now, now I want you to listen this morning. If you're a person who has a hard time forgiving, and it has been the story of your life, then I don't care how long you've been in church and how many sermons you listen to and how long it goes you, you went under the water, there's some spiritual immaturity in your life that needs to be dealt with. Now, why would I say that? Because listen this morning. Mature people live by their commitments and convictions. Immature people live by their emotions. Let me repeat that. Mature people live by convictions and commitments. Immature people live by their emotions. And if you just say, well, listen, I believe in forgiveness and I know the Bible teaches it, but I just can't ever get my heart there. Then you're letting your emotions lead and not the word of God. And that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. What does he say there in verse nine? Look what he says. He says, for this and I also write that I might put you to the test. You see, forgiveness is a test. What's it a test of? Keep reading in verse nine. He says, whether you are obedient in all things, a person who consistently lives by their convictions and their commitments over and over, they become known for that. That's just another word for obedience. And obedience is making the choice to do what's right, even when I don't feel like it. And can I just get honest this morning? Sometimes in forgiveness, I don't feel like it. It doesn't feel good. As a matter of fact, uh, turning the other cheek would, uh, doesn't feel nearly as good as punching them in the nose. Amen. And we get to that place where we just say, I'm so angry, I just can't get to that place. But he says, it's a test. I want to see if you're obedient in all things or just the things that come easy to you. Now, let me tell you what the, what the test is, and how to pass the test. Let me tell you what kind of commitments you have to make in forgiveness. And I walked through this uh, two years ago when I taught this, but I want to review this with you again this morning because it is crucial, crucial in getting to the place of total forgiveness. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. Number one, forgiveness is a decision. It's a decision. It's not an emotion. 
It's not waiting till all the anger subsides. It's not waiting till the, the bitterness just naturally creeps out of you. It's not waiting. You know, listen, it is a choice to forgive. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat across from people who said this. Well, listen, I want to forgive them, but I just can't get there. I said, it's because you're trying to feel forgiveness instead of choose forgiveness. It's a choice. And when I make the choice to release a person from the hurt uh, when they injured me, I'm making the choice of forgiveness. And at that point, I'm not seeking vengeance. I'm not uh, trying to get even. I'm not wishing for bad things to happen to them. I'm not focused on their failure and delighting in their failure. Matter of fact, I'm not thinking about them at all. Why? Because I've released them. They're no longer taking up free rent in my mind. I've made the choice of forgiveness. And some of you said, you know what? I made that choice. But for whatever reason, I just keep cycling back through. I mean, I chose to forgive them, but 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 listen, it's not too far down the road. I find myself in that same spot furious. But I chose to forgive. Listen, it's only half the equation because forgiveness is a decision that I make. It's a choice of obedience. But secondly, forgiveness is also a process. In the decision of forgiveness, we say, I choose. I make the decision to forgive you. But in the process of forgiveness, we say, I will treat you as though it never happened. I'm not forgetting it impossible. I've heard that forgiveness is forgetting. Listen, that's not biblical. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying that what you did is OK. I'm not letting it, you know, the injustice. I'm not I'm not failing to, to hold you accountable anymore. I'm choosing to forgive. I'm making a decision but I'm going to engage in the process over and over and over again till I get to the place where I have freedom from my anger and bitterness. What is the decision or the process of forgiveness. Here's how the process works. And by the way, it gets progressively harder. Here's step number one. in The process of forgiveness is this. I won't bring the offense up to the person except for their benefit. I will not bring the offense up again to that person except for their benefit. Now, how could that be beneficial? Because if you love someone and they've hurt other people, maybe even you, and you see them heading down that same path again, and everybody knows how that turns out and who gets injured in that process You just say, you know what, this is uncomfortable, but I love you. And I know you don't want those outcomes because they were painful. I love you. And so for your benefit, I'm going to remind you of how this turns out. Because we've been down this road before, haven't we, Jack? And so what that means is this. Is that the offense is no longer the trump card in every single argument. You get into a little spat. Get a little sideways with each other. The other person gets angry. They may be wrong. They're not winning the argument out of their back pocket. They take that old offense they've been hanging on. They throw it on the table and say, yeah, but remember what you did? Who are you? To, who are you to say that to? Remember what you did? I choose not to bring the offense up to the other person except for their benefit. I choose to withhold it or I choose not make it the trump card in every future disagreement. Step number two, I won't bring the offense up to others. Because every time I engage someone in conversation, I draw back from that place in my own sinful heart and pull it back up again and nurse again to the point where, where I got to tell somebody else about it. Listen, if in your circle of influence, everybody knows what happened to you within 30 minutes or 30 days of knowing you, guess what? You may have said you forgave, but you never have. I won't bring the offense up to the others. Here's the third step in the process. The hardest of all, I won't bring the offense up to myself. I won't meditate and nurse my anger. I don't rehearse how bad it hurt in my own mind. 
The Bible says I'm to renew my mind and to change my life and I'm to think upon good things. I'm to meditate upon whatever things are lovely, whatever things are true, whatever things are pure. And renew my mind around the Word of God. Now, now listen, listen. Here's what some of you are thinking this morning. I can't do that. I cannot bring it up to them. I can probably not talk about it. But I can't not bring it up to myself. And I just, it dominates my thoughts. I can't do that. And hear me this morning. I agree with you. You can't. But the Spirit of God inside of you should empower you to do things you would never do left to your own abilities. That the Spirit of God inside of us empowers us to where that old adage to err is human, but to forgive is divine literally becomes true. And so when someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, I heard what happened to you. I saw what happened to you. I know what happened to you. How have you gotten to the place where you just released that? You don't talk about it. You don't nurse it. I don't see any anger or bitterness in your life. How did you get there? You say solely by the grace of God. The Spirit of God kept working on my heart and working on my heart and working on my heart and going through that process and empowered me to do what I could not do left to my own. And I hope there are some things that you give testimony of that say, hey, listen, apart from the grace of God in my life, I would have never moved beyond that. Isn't God good? And so he says, we walk through the process of forgiveness because it's an act, not what we feel, but it's an act of maturity. Verse 9, he says, I want to test you to see if you are obedient in all things. I want to test you to see if you are willing to live by your commitments and convictions and not by your emotions and what that person did to you. Here's the last principle. Forgiveness protects us spiritually. Protects us spiritually. I had read this passage before, but until I got and dug it again this week, I had forgotten about verse 11 and the principle contained there. Look how Paul ends his appeal warning them of the high price of unforgiveness. Look what he says in verse 11. Let's go back up to verse 10 so you see the context. He says, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, some of your translations would say schemes in there. The idea of schemes or devices speaks of a military strategy. It's the idea of an army coming in in the dark of the night under the radar, kind of sneaking in and setting up camp to where the other person, other army isn't even aware, but they're incredibly vulnerable. And he's saying, listen, when you don't forgive, you, you have your, you're in a place spiritually where you're, you're totally wide open. That the enemy and his devices and schemes can creep into your heart and take hold of it. And before you even realize what's going on, before you don't even know the source of that anger or bitterness anymore, he's already set up camp and he's winning the war. You know what I found in my life? Is that most of the time when Satan shows up in my life, he doesn't come to the front door with a pitchfork and a red suit on. Amen? I wish he would. It'd be a lot easier, right? No, no, no. He's so subtle. He's such a deceiver. He's like a lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour. You know what a lion doesn't do? A lion never walks into a pack of hyenas and goes, hey guys, let's have a party. No, no, it's down in the weeds. And he says, if your heart is filled with bitterness, then guess what? You are wide open for the enemy to sneak in his schemes, his devices, to creep in and grab hold and plant the seeds of bitterness that will take root in the soil of your heart. And sometimes before it's too late, before the damage has already been done, so how do I know if that's happened? What do I look for? Let me give you some warning signs of weeds in your heart. This is not exhaustive, but it is diagnostic. 
And as you reflect on these statements, do you find any of them to be true this morning? Every time I think of that person or event, I still feel angry. I have a secret, subtle desire to see them pay for what they did to me. Deep in my heart, I wouldn't mind if something bad happened to that person who hurt me. If their name comes up, I'm more likely to say something negative as opposed to something positive. And I enjoy it. I cannot thank God for that person. You say, Brad, why in the world do you thank God for a difficult person in your life? The same reason I thank God for difficult trials in my life. God uses them to sanctify me. God uses those things to push me to the cross and go, man, I'm a sinner too. I need forgiveness. I could not bring myself to the place where I could pray for God to bless that person. Do you realize that's the fruit of total forgiveness? That when I come to the place where I say, you know what, I'm not going to talk bad about them. I'm not going to bring their name up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do that. But moving to the place to say, God, I wish you would bless their life. I wish you would pour out your blessings on their life. It means taking serious what Jesus said when he said this in Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's what total forgiveness looks like. Revival is a heart that is consumed with God. But there's no room for God in a heart filled with bitterness. And revival, hear me this morning, revival will never, ever visit the church. It will never visit the church without first making a stop at your heart. I invite you to bow your heads this morning, if you would, please.